following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. So here's something you may not know about me. Growing up at my church, I was the president of our church's chapter of the Loyal Temperance Legion. If you have, please, I beg of you, if you have ever heard of the Loyal Temperance Legion, would you raise your hand right now? I just want to see if I have, oh, I have three fellow travelers in the room. <laughs> Thanks be to God. Um, so the Loyal Temperance Legion is the, um, the youth propaganda arm of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, the WCTU, as you probably know it. Um, this is a group of... Uh, Christian women whose big goal understanding of their faith is to, is to kind of help people understand the risks and dangers of alcohol and tobacco consumption, right? Now, we have a little bit of a chuckle about that, and that's okay, but I don't want to make light of this. Um, certainly for many people, total abstinence from alcohol and tobacco is, is uh, to be advised. And I don't, I, I, you know, we have some people who are in recovery who are here, part of our community, and so I, I, I really, truly don't want to make light of that, um, except to the extent that um, I, I'm no longer the president of the Loyal Temperance Legion. I guess I'd just say that. So we had this pledge that we had to make every week. And it goes like this. That I may give my best service to home and country, I promise, God helping me, not to buy, drink, sell, or give alcoholic liquors while I live. From other drugs and tobacco, I'll abstain and never take the Lord's name in vain. All right? So, this was uh, a promise that I took really seriously in, in adolescence and even to early adulthood. Um, eventually, I realized, no, that's BS to make a, a little kid, seven years old, pledge to do something like that for the rest of his life. That's, that's not a really, that's probably not an admirable thing. Um, compared to the alternative, which would be teaching moderation or any number of other solutions. But, so, but this hung with me so much. It was so much a part of the culture of my church growing up, which um, is where I came to faith in Christ and is where I first kind of started to embrace what that meant as I entered adolescence and what discipleship was like. So I don't hear me totally railing on this place, but it was totally in the culture of this church that, that uh, abstinence was the expectation, the assumption, um, abstinence from alcohol, right, and tobacco. So I had this kind of cloud of assumption hanging over me for much of my life to the extent that anytime I saw somebody smoking a cigarette, my assumption was that person is not a Christian, right? You know, and I don't recommend smoking cigarettes, by the way, uh, especially for children in the room, I want you to know for sure, I think that's a very bad idea, okay? But it doesn't, it, 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 I don't think it affects your, um, your eternal salvation <laughs> necessarily. Um, and I did, growing up, think that. So I think I've gotten over that particular prejudice. I think it's safe to say I, I now don't make those particular assumptions. But I have to be honest and say that there are still some other ones that I make, right? Uh, for example, people who, who drink malt liquor, I think, uh, you know, a very cheap uh, American corn-based lager, 
uh, you know, <laughs> those people are not living into God's best for their life. They're just not. You know, the guy with the chains and the baggy jeans and the script tattoos on his neck. For that matter, the guys on bicycles with short sleeve shirts and thin neckties and name badges. The poor person whose child is wearing raggedy clothes but has very expensive headphones on. The, um, the visibly unhealthy person who's perpetuating you know, the, the very things that probably made him or her unhealthy. The truth is, I still do make judgments about people based on what I can see, the way they look, the way they act, who they're spending their time with. We all do, don't we? I think if you, if you would say you never do that, you probably need to do a little bit of self-evaluation. <laughs> I think you're probably lying to yourself. This kind of thing is not fair. I sure wouldn't want someone to judge me without getting to know me. I'm a very complicated person. You can't figure me out from sight. And the really sad part is that we make these judgments not just about matters of health or finances um, or consumption. We make these judgments when it comes to matters of faith and spirituality too, don't we? Oh, that person's a fundamentalist. Oh, she's a liberal. They believe this about the Bible. They believe that about marriage. And can you believe that one family? They didn't come to church just because it snowed six inches on March 30th. (laughs) We all love Jesus. Hi there, podcast listeners who missed this service. Nice to have you with us today. Even Samuel, the wise old judge of Israel, the, the, the one who was closest to God in the whole community, was not immune from making these guesses about people based on their appearance. Remember, he goes to anoint one of the sons of Jesse, and who does he assume of the seven he can see? There's actually eight. Who does he assume is going to be the king? The tall, dark, and handsome one, Right? That benefits those of us who are tall, dark, and handsome, but it's not really fair to the others. <laughs> right? And the Lord had to chastise him. God had to say to him, the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the what? On the heart. The Lord looks on the heart is a lesson that I have to relearn continually. Don't you? Here's something else you might not know about me. More of you know this about me than knew the other thing, I would wager. Um, but you probably don't all know that I suffer from a chronic illness. I, I have a, a disease called psoriatic arthritis, which, um, as you can probably guess, is a, a lovely cocktail of psoriasis and arthritis. And um, it's uh, right now uh, is being very well controlled by an experimental drug, <laughs> Um, which is about to be written up in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is kind of cool. But um, when I'm not on this drug, actually, as I haven't been for about a month because I, it's, uh, it suppresses my immune system and I had to go off it to have the surgery on my finger. So I'm starting to feel the pain coming back into my joints. And uh, it can be very frustrating and painful 
and sometimes embarrassing. Um, certainly the psoriasis is embarrassing when that's flaring up. But, uh, you know, on mornings like this when we have a big heavy snow and I, I literally just cannot shovel the driveway and my poor wife has to go out and, and shovel the driveway for us. Now, I'm not like a macho guy. I'm not exactly worried about what my neighbors are thinking that that guy makes his wife shovel the driveway. Um, but the truth is, Tracy already does plenty around the house. She doesn't need to be burdened with that. And it's just, anybody who has any kind of chronic illness knows this. And, and some of you have a chronic illnesses that are much more difficult to, to deal with than I have. Um, but there's never, there's never any relief from this. And it affects your, your outlook every day. And uh, sometimes people say really dumb things to you when you have a chronic illness. Like, uh, oh, I know how you feel. I'm not sure that you do. How about I, how about I uh, take a baseball bat to your kneecaps? <laughs> and then you'll know how I feel for a day or two. <laughs> um, and uh, religious people say even dumber things to you when, you're, when you have a chronic illness or when you're suffering with anything, actually. Is, uh, suffering seems to, to bring out the dumbest comments in religious people. My favorite dumb thing that religious people say to each other is, well, everything happens for a reason. Um, with apologies to those of you who have maybe a slightly different theological bent than I have, I don't actually think everything happens for a reason. I do not think that the world works that way. I don't think it affects God's power or sovereignty in the universe to say that he doesn't ordain every little thing that happens to every little person um, and every little flower and every little ant. That is definitely a sermon or probably a whole series of them for another day. But I don't think that everything happens for a reason. And just for a second, let's assume that it does, right? Because you may think that it does, and that, that's okay. We have a theological difference, and that's fine. You're welcome to be here. Um, I hope I'm also welcome to be here. So let's say everything does happen for a reason. What makes you think that we always have the capacity to know what it is? What makes you think it would be helpful to point that out to a person who's going through something really difficult? What makes you think that would be comforting to me? In fact, if it's true, it's extremely unsettling and not comforting at all to me. But again, another day. So we can say dumb religious things to people who are suffering. All of us have said it. And you, sometimes you say it and you go, ooh, I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry. That was dumb of me. Believe me, I know, because it's, it's part of my job description to say religious things to people who are going through trying times. And I live in constant anxiety that, that what I say is more dumb than smart, <laughs> um, more harmful than helpful, more awkward than insightful. Well, today's gospel passage is one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. It's the story of a man who was born blind. So I'm going to read this in a different translation. So you don't need to grab it in the Red Bibles or open your own Bible if you don't want to. I don't usually use this, this translation. Um, strictly speaking, it's not actually a translation, but you don't need to, to care about that. 
Um, this is the message, which is a, a version of the Bible transliterated from the original languages by Eugene Peterson, who's one of my favorite pastoral authors. But he's most famous for this, the message, which some of you have and have read. Um, it, it puts the text of the Bible into a more kind of colloquial, conversational, um, narrative approach, which is uh, and not entirely inconsistent with the type of language that it was written in, but that's okay. So the reason I want to read this like this is for two reasons. One is, some of you have never heard this story. You're new to the Bible or whatever. I think it'll be a little easier to grasp it if I read it like this because it's a fairly long story. The other reason is that the rest of you who've heard this story a hundred times in, in kind of more bible churchy language um, might hear it with fresh ears this way, okay? So um, this is John chapter 9, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Typically, uh, during Lent, we would stand for the gospel reading, but I want you to hear the story here, okay? Walking down the street, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, causing him to be born blind? Jesus said, you're asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. There is no such cause-effect here. Look instead for what God can do. We need to be energetically at work for the one who sent me here, working while the sun shines. When night falls, the workday is over. For as long as I am in the world, there is plenty of light. I am the world's light. He said this, and then spit in the dust, made a clay paste with the saliva, rubbed the paste on the blind man's eyes, and said, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. The man went and washed and saw. Soon the town was buzzing. His relatives and those who year after year had seen him as a blind man begging were saying, why isn't this the man who, why isn't this the man we knew who sat here and begged? Others said, it's him all right. But others objected, it is not the same man at all. It just looks like him. He said, it's me, the very one. They said, how did your eyes get opened? A man named Jesus made a paste and rubbed it on my eyes and told me, go to Siloam and wash. I did what he said. When I washed, I saw. So where is he? I don't know. They marched the man to the Pharisees. This day when Jesus made the paste and healed his blindness was the Sabbath. The Pharisees grilled him again on how he had come to see. He said... He put a clay paste on my eyes, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, Obviously, this man can't be from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. Others counted, How can a bad man do miraculous, God-revealing things like this? There was a split in their ranks. They came back at the blind man. You're the expert. He opened your eyes. What do you say about him? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews didn't believe it, didn't believe the man was blind to begin with. So they called the parents of the man, now bright-eyed with sight. They asked them, is this your son, the one you say was born blind? So how is it that he now sees? His parents said, we know he is our son, and we know he was born blind, but we don't know how he came to see, having a clue about who opened his eyes. Why don't you ask him? He's a grown man and can speak for himself. His parents were talking like this because they were intimidated by the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who took a stand that this was the Messiah 
would be kicked out of the meeting place. That's why his parents said, ask him, he's a grown man. They called the man back a second time, the man who had been blind, and told him, give credit to God. We know this man is an imposter. And this is why I love this story so much, because this guy is the great, like one of the greatest wiseacres in all of the Bible. He replied, I know nothing about that one way or the other, but I know one thing for sure. I was blind. I now see. They said, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I've told you over and over and you haven't listened. Why do you want to hear it again? Are you so eager to become his disciples? <laughs> I could imagine myself saying that, which is why I love him so much. With that, they jumped all over him. You might be a disciple of that man, but we're disciples of Moses. We know for sure that God spoke to Moses, but we have no idea where this man even comes from. The man replied, this is amazing. You claim to know nothing about him, but the fact is he opened my eyes. It's well known that God isn't at the beck and call of sinners, but listens carefully to anyone who lives in reverence and does his will. That someone opened the eyes of a man born blind has never been heard of, ever. If this man didn't come from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. They said, you're nothing but dirt. How dare you take that tone with us? And then they threw him out on the street. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out and went and found him. He asked him, do you believe in the Son of Man? The man said, point him out to me, sir, so that I can believe him. Jesus said, you're looking right at him. Don't you recognize my voice? Master, I believe, the man said, and worshipped him. Jesus then said, I came into the world to bring everything into the clear light of day, making all the distinctions clear so that those who have never seen will see, and those who have made great pretense of seeing will be exposed as blind. Some Pharisees overheard him and said, Does that mean you're calling us blind? You see, they're very quick. (laughs) Jesus said, If you were really blind, you would be blameless. But since you claim to see everything so well, you are accountable for every fault and failure. So I love this story. I think there's a couple things going on here. One is that the Pharisees really don't like Jesus, um, and they're trying to trap him. And a great way to trap someone you don't like is with a misapplied religious law. It's unbelievable that these religious snobs would try to stop someone from healing a person on the basis of a religious law that doesn't actually have anything to do with the situation at hand in the life of the person who's suffering. That would never happen today, would it? Except it just did. All week it happened. Please don't get me started on that. I'm holding myself back right now. Suffice it to say that if you don't know what I'm talking about, lucky you, if you do know what I'm talking about and you're as disgusted, uh, if you're disgusted by the way the evangelical world responded to World Vision this week, uh, you are not alone. You have kindred spirits in this room. The point is the Pharisees don't like Jesus and they're trying to trap him. That's, that's the first thing that's going on. The other thing that's going on here is that the, the fact that the man could have been healed at all is breaking the Pharisees' entire narrative about how the world works. See, for years, they've been walking past this guy, begging for change, 
And they'd been assuming that someone somewhere had sinned to cause this terrible condition. Maybe it was him. Maybe it was his parents. Clearly somebody messed up and he's paying the price. Thank God I can see because that's never been true for me or anybody in my life. His blindness and begging allowed them to elevate their own station in life, spiritually, financially, and otherwise. And so when he can suddenly see, what can they make of that? They have to figure that they've been wrong all along, right? That blows up their whole worldview. They have to figure that maybe God actually wants a lot more to do with broken, damaged people than they themselves want to do with those same people. That is the risk in being a Pharisee. What do you do when God starts to use someone who you thought was outside the circle of trust? What do you do when God apparently wants to use someone who you thought was on the spiritual junk pile for a reason? Those Pharisees, they just don't get it. But notice this. It wasn't just the Pharisees who had this worldview, was it? Who asked Jesus the question in the first place that prompted this entire event? It was his disciples who asked Jesus, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? See, we're not that far off from this, are we? The assumption deep down and you know this is true if you think about it, is always to think that the other person did something to deserve it. Right? Remember, the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God sees their heart. Whatever you see when you look at somebody, it's not their heart. So you can't judge somebody. Whether you're a disciple or a Pharisee, that's going to be your propensity. It's going to be your inclination. It's going to be your knee-jerk reaction to judge somebody based on what you can see of them, but God sees that person's heart. That's the obvious message of these stories, both the one from 1 Samuel and the one from John 9, isn't it? God sees the heart. God doesn't look at the outward appearance. But let me go one step further. What about how you see yourself? What about how it feels when somebody makes a judgment based on your outward appearance? Nobody wants to be judged unfairly for the way they look, how they dress, what they happen to be eating or drinking or doing at a given moment, who their friends are. None of us want to be judged on the basis of those things, but... That's not actually what I'm talking about right now. I'm talking about the ways that we control the visible message. To obscure what's really going on in our hearts and thus trick people into making an unfair, favorable judgment about who we are. See, it's one thing to say, come on, everybody, 
let's not make judgments about other people. But the problem is it's inconsistent, logically, if you say that, and then all the while you're going around trying to control the judgments that other people make about you based on what they can see, based on what you will show them. Because if you are smart, and all of us are, Artisan is a very smart church, you know that you can take that human tendency to judge based on the outward appearance and you can twist that in your favor. It's bad for your soul and it's bad for community. So just as you have to remember that God sees the goodness in others that is hidden from you, you also must remember that God sees what you are hiding from others. God sees the evil in your own heart. That's partly, I think, what Paul is saying in the letter to the Ephesians that Del read at our confessional prayer time. Light exposes the darkness. It's a beautiful, inspirational phrase, isn't it? Light exposes the darkness. You could almost see it on one of those cheesy motivational posters at the Christian bookstore. Right? It would probably have a sunrise. If you hear those words and think pretty sunrise, you are missing the point of that passage, friends. <laughs> that passage is about Christ shining the light on the darkness that is in you. <laughs> it's not just about lighting the way in a dark night so that his little pet can get through the forest. It's about exposing the shadows in your own heart. And if you don't want the shadows exposed, then you don't want any part of Jesus. Because Jesus exposes the shadows. He doesn't, he doesn't come in on the terms of, that you might demand. Help me expose the shadows and the darkness in the world around me, Lord. I just want to work alongside you. Well, wait a second. Turn around. What do I see back there? Is that a neck tattoo on your soul? Paul says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. He says it's shameful even to think about what such people might do. And by such people, I think he means us. Everything exposed by the light becomes visible. If you want the light of Christ to come on your life and, and, and warm you and light the way for your path and help you share light with others, you have to, it's a package deal, my friends. You have to let them light up the dark places in your life too. Sleeper, awake. Aren't the words of the Bible so sterile sometimes? I imagine a, the slovenly roommate that we all had. It's two in the afternoon. Wake up! Except it's not the roommate. And it's not you yelling. It's you on the couch, spiritually speaking. And Paul is saying, wake up! Look at yourself. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. 
So during Lent, we have been focusing on just this very thing, haven't we? The problem lies with me. Sure, there's lots of bad stuff in the world that we have nothing to do with. We have nothing to do with it, so there's not much you can do to help it. But there's plenty in your own life that you can focus on, that you can allow Christ to do something about, and it starts with simply admitting it. Repenting of it is what we talk about during Lent, the act of turning away from something, but I think it's important before you can turn away from something to name it. That part is called confession. We Protestants have lost this wonderful Christian discipline of confession, and the, the traditions that have retained it may have kind of neutered it, to be honest, um, but that doesn't mean it's all bad. There is great power in saying to another person, I screwed up in this way. I'm confessing that to you right now. Oh, believe me, it's a lot more comfortable not to. But that's where it starts. That is what exposing the darkness with the light, that's how it happens, right? You have, this, you have the curtains. You can block out the light if you really want to. Coming to follow Jesus means first opening the curtains of your soul and, and letting, letting his light shine on your darkness and saying, this is dark. This is who I am, and I need to leave it behind. I'm going to follow you now. I'm going to turn away from that and go in a different direction. That's what we've been talking about all through Lent. And the beautiful thing is that when you repent and confess, he welcomes you with open arms. I am so sorry if all this emphasis on sin and repentance throughout Lent has made you miss the point that, that turning to him is the way you, that's all washed away. Because otherwise, you know, might be, why, what, what benefit is there in turning from it, right? It's a little scary either way to say I'm leaving behind my old life and starting something new. But it's a little less scary when you trust in Jesus that, that when you do that, he will forgive you. So, I want to give you just a moment of silence, you know. We're not exactly an altar call church. We don't actually have an altar. We will eventually, when we rebuild our platform here, it's going to have an altar built into it. Maybe that'll, that'll change our approach to this kind of moment. Um, but given that we don't have an altar... Um, Here's what I'd like to, to do, actually. Um, can you just duck back a chair there? Thank you. So we have opening things here. Like, let's, let's pretend this is an altar, these chairs right here, okay? Um, we're just going to sing, and I'm going to open the communion table to you. Um, you may be a person who needs to confess and repent now. And um, if you are, what I would suggest you do is... Um, while we're coming forward to communion, you just sort of pause here and you can kneel on, in, in these chairs and, um, and uh, make your confession repentance kind of moment with, with Christ right here. Now, that's a visible, physical thing. People are going to see you do that. I understand that's challenging and embarrassing, but I promise you 
on behalf of our community, I'm going to be playing guitar, so it may not be me. I promise you, if you're kneeling there, someone will come and pray with you. And if you see somebody kneeling there and you're not having that kind of moment, you don't need to have that moment right now, um, whether you're a member of the prayer team or not, get down and pray with that person. Would you do that? And we may have nobody who, who takes us up on this offer. That's okay, too. Um, but I don't know. I, I, to be honest with you, I feel like I sometimes drop the ball on this, this type of moment because I don't like to ask people to do something uncomfortable. So I repent of that just now. <laughs> and um, if you want to have a moment of confession um, with, with Jesus or with another person, that's wonderful. We'll, we'll provide that for you here. If you just need to kind of rekindle that, that spirit of repentance in your soul, you can do that here as well. If you just want to take communion and, and go on as you've been going on, that is totally fine too. Christ is calling you to allow him to shine his light on your dark places. And I would recommend that you respond if that's what you're hearing right now. So um, we're going to step to the side as musicians so that you can come to the communion table while we're doing this. I found this wonderful um, little communion statement here that I'd like to give now. I think it fits so well for people who feel like they maybe don't actually belong at the table of Jesus This is what it says. This is not the table of the church, but of the Lord. It is to be made ready for those who love him and who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith, you who have little. You who've been here often and you who have not been for a very long time. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed. Come not because it is I who invite you. It is our Lord. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here and here for what it's worth today. Let's pray together and then we'll sing some more. Lord, thank you for these words from Scripture, for the way they continually challenge us and um, pierce our souls and, and Jesus for those of us who are experiencing right now a sense of your calling that, that you want to shine your light on the dark places in our soul, um, we ask for courage to respond to that. We ask for your Holy Spirit to uh, bless us as we make that moment reality, as we confess and repent and uh, seek to follow you. May these simple elements of the earth, the bread and wine, Be for us your body and blood, reminders of your sacrifice, food for our souls, an act of spiritual unity together with each other and with you. We pray these things in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Our table is open. Our makeshift altar is open. Come and receive. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.